Hello, and thanks for listening to the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields, uh, CMO for Pop Health here at Mount Sinai. Um, and today I am talking with Linda DeSherry, who um, is a wonderful leader in geriatrics in our system and has worked on some really cool innovative models of delivery that we're going to talk about today. But uh, Linda, I appreciate you being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So um, if you tell us a little bit about, you know, before visiting docs, you had other part of your career. Tell us a little bit about your path and how you got here. Yeah, um, you know, in in uh, actually probably even in college, I had an experience doing house calls with my grandfather's family mm. physician in Belgium, and um, I was intrigued by it. I wouldn't have said that that was going to be my career, but that right. it you know perked my interest enough to do some geriatric electives in medical school, and then I was hooked. I knew that geriatrics was where I wanted to be. I wanted to go into primary care and. Um, uh, work with the elderly. And so when I went to Boston University for my internal medicine mm-hmm. residency, um, I was in the primary care track and was able to have a panel of house call patients for two years. Um, and that gave me, I really quickly realized the challenges and I almost, I almost gave up at that point. I said, this is really challenging and I don't know if I can do this for a career. Yeah. Um, but I continued on in geriatrics and um, then had the experience here at Mount Sinai in the visiting doctors as a geriatrics fellow. And uh, I was fortunate enough that there was a job opening and that's where I started as my first job after training um, with the Mount Sinai visiting doctors. Yeah. Geriatrics has challenges just by itself right like in terms of uh, and my experience are always questions of sustainability what the right model is is it more of a consultant is it primary care Uh, before we get into visiting docs i'm curious about the just the challenges in geriatrics and how you see the world of geriatrics moving what do we need to do to because it's clearly a needed yeah well that's that's a great question we're never going to have enough geriatricians um to take care of everyone over 65 and we probably don't need to yeah um what um uh, there here in the geriatric field, there is some debate as to what that would should or, or could look like. Yeah. Um, I personally think that one of the things that geriatricians need to do is to be educators. Mm-hmm. So I think all medical students, doesn't matter what they go into, mm-hmm. pediatrics, OBGYN, they need to know something about geriatrics, and that's one thing that all geriatricians need to be involved in is yeah. medical education, residency education, to give folks who. Um, aren't going to have maybe a geriatrician accessible to them some skills to be able to um, take care of geriatric right. patients. That's that's one of the most important things. And then I think um, there's a variety of models. So it could be consultants with internal medicine, primary care, um, consultants in the hospital, and then maybe in certain um, um super complex, you know, uh, or a variety of models where you might want to have more geriatric um, involvement. Yeah. About every geriatrician I've ever met, and in some ways it feels similar to, to pediatrics in that way, um, has been an ad- I mean, we're all advocate for our patients, but it always feels like geriatricians in particular have that advocacy sort of aspect to their job. Does that feel right yeah, to you? Yeah, yeah. I think that you... Um, have to want to have a relationship with more than just the patient yeah. um, to go into this because not only is this a interfamily usually um, relationship, but it's also then an interdisciplinary relationship with the folks who are on your own team to be able right. to take care of the patient. Yeah. 
just like pediatrics, you're going to have the patient and their parents or their guardians. And for us, often we have to also involve the family members because the patient might have dementia mm-hmm. or frailty that they can't get around mm-hmm. to appointments. So, um, yeah. yeah. It's definitely true. Advocacy is part of it. But you can't do it alone. I think that's how geriatricians will burn out. You need to have the team of um, other healthcare professionals working with you. Yeah. So um, thinking about visiting docs and and obviously talk about the specifics of the program, it's interesting you say that part of the early inspiration was doing house calls with with the family member. and, And it strikes me that a lot of the things that we call sort of innovation and delivery, certainly on the pop health side, actually pretty old school kind of things is stuff that we've been doing for a long time like home visits you know yeah um it's a funny thing i guess yeah um i mean certainly when i started and i would tell um a family friend or something what i was doing they would be like oh that's so nice you know that's like (laughs) really good-hearted of you to do that i think things have really changed um in the last 10 uh 15 years where we're really looked at as, as a solution for many problems mm-hmm. um, in the health system where we have a variety of patients who are either not able to make it to appointments who might not be geriatric or homebound, mm-hmm. or they just have been coming in and out of the hospital. A variety of reasons. We're actually, maybe not that we have to actually take care of the patients, but we have knowledge that could be helpful right. um, in thinking through the solution. So, um yeah, about 10 years ago, like this breakthrough kind of happened yeah, and it was right. really um, uh, a variety of us were invited to many more meetings within the health system to help um, think through some of the issues. Yeah. It seems to me that the further we get in pop health and there's so much on the technology and data side, the more we realize that the only way, I, at least my feeling about pop health, to make a dent is is a relationship-based approach. And that all the data and technology in the world is great. But ultimately, we're all tasked to change behavior on high for high risk patients and or change outcomes in some way, and it, that only happens via relationships. And and I think one of the best examples is doing home visits and having that level of relationship with patients. It, it, I mean, it's second to none. I think I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And one other point is that you know house calls. You know, twenty years ago, forty years ago wasn't very high tech. It was very high touch. You know, you were in person with the patient and you could use everything in your literal black bag. Today, I mean, I have an EKG machine on my iPhone. Um, We have a pulse ox. We have, you know, the full uh, medical record on our phones or our iPads. I mean, that ability to have the high tech makes it even better. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, think about the visiting docs program specifically, uh, if you can talk a little bit about the history of it and how yeah. and Sinai's invested a lot in it over the years, and which is pretty amazing. But yeah, let's talk yeah. about how it got So Visiting Doctors were started in 1995 um, by three medicine residents, and they convinced a nurse in the internal medicine clinic to work on her lunch hour to wow. help them out. They realized there were patients who weren't coming to the resident clinic. Um, they weren't showing up. They weren't able to make it to the appointments. And also, frankly, I think the three of them, from their report, they were burnt out. They were mm-hmm. doing long nights in the hospital and had missed out on that touch with patients that they that they really craved for. And so they convinced um, the leadership here to um, hire them part-time to start visiting doctors, to go out and wow. do house calls in East Harlem. 
So they um, found some local community nursing agencies, Little Sisters of the Assumption here in East Harlem, and learned about house calls. They went to BU. They went other places in the United States that had some existing house call programs and learned from them mm-hmm. and started the Mount Sinai Visiting Doctors. Um, a, a few years later, it became an integrated part of the medicine residency. I think that okay. was an important um, piece of information that every medicine resident at Mount Sinai um, Hospital rotates for, um, it's been a variety of times every year, but a significant rotation at visiting doctors. Wow. Um, so that also allows this this geriatrics training to happen right. um, you know, for the residents. Right. Um, and most of them will never do a house call later on in their career, but they have this exposure and are knowing what can happen in the home and what's, what's possible. Yeah. I'm actually secretly hoping that more do over time. <laughs> we can change the, the economics of it. But, um, so, yeah, yeah, so that's how it, how it started. Um, and it grew, um, and it's one of the largest academic house call programs in the country today. We yeah. take care of over 1,800 patients. Wow. Um, we have 10 equivalents of a doctor, meaning that it's spread over actually 18 doctors. But if you add them all up at mm-hmm. the time, it's it's 10, 10 FTEs of, of, of physician along with nurse practitioners, social workers, admin, nurses um, to run the program. It's a staff of 40 um, wow. to take care of um, our patients. Yeah. Um, selection criteria, um, it, it, I think I've heard you say in the past it's has corollaries to how Medicare determines homebound. Is that about right? Yeah, exactly. So Medicare has homebound rules, and they were created for the visiting nurse services. Mm -hmm. Um, And so many patients who meet that criteria can still come into a doctor's office. So Mm -hmm. we kind of use the Medicare homebound rules as a starting point and then really try to find the person who has difficulty getting for routine primary care. Okay. So the Medicare homebound rules are that they leave the house infrequently, um, and when they do leave the house, they always need an assistive device or a person to accompany them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what defines homebound. You can go to unlimited doctor's appointments, dialysis, adult day health, but otherwise really infrequent um, leaving your house. And then, as I said, we look then for patients who um, who just haven't been able to access routine primary care. That that would be the right person for us to take care of and right. the right use of our resources. Right. Um, so, um, fortunately, there's a lot of patients who uh, meet that criteria, and we we have a waiting list to get into I'm the sure. program. I'm sure. Um, in like on an average day, it pro- I'm sure it varies based on geography. But how many patients can a visiting doc see? Um, our goal is to see seven patients a day, um, okay. and the goal is to have your patients all in one zip code on a particular day. So each okay. physician has three or four zip codes that they have patients in, and then on an individual day, they stay within that one zip code. Um, so the it only seems like a logistics challenge sometimes in scheduling. It know. is a logistics challenge. Yeah. So you know, the um, administrative assistants um, do spend a lot of time yeah. working on that. Um, and then um, the only exception to that is that we always have one or two providers a clear schedule for urgent visits. Okay. Um, because that's kind of what's important um, in the program. It's not the not only the preventive routine care, very important to have all those goals of care discussions and make decisions in advance, but also the ability to react when there is a problem mm-hmm. because um, uh, many of the patients have previously been using the emergency room for a lot of um, their services. So 
returning a phone call pretty quickly, um, the ability to send out paramedics during the night, the ability to do urgent visits the next day, labs the, the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really important um, to maintain um, the patients um, in the home as appropriate. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever found that there are patients that you or the team has managed over time that uh, as, as a result of that, I would say, higher intensity, more personal care, actually do better enough to graduate? I know that's not the intent of the program, but does that happen? Um, it happens. Well, in our current model, that's not kind of how we do most of our patients. That is a okay. model that, that could be entertained and is used in many other high-risk-like okay. clinics. Yeah. Um, the patients who graduate are often patients who have severe arthritis or morbid obesity who live in walk-up apartment buildings, and they get to an oh, elevator building. Okay. Um, they get moved, often because of our social work assistance yeah. and getting them better um, sure. housing. Yeah. Then they might graduate. I see. Um, because um, they're in a better situation. They're in a better situation, them. and then yeah, they can great. get out. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, that makes um, sense. That would be the most frequent situation yeah. for us. Otherwise, um, it's it's someone who moves out of the geography to go to live with their family member, right. or they move to a nursing home, um, or unfortunately, we you know by the they, nature of our practice, at patients who who die pass away. Yeah. Yeah. If um, uh, it, again, you're selecting out for a sick population. So I imagine, on average, if we were to look at their relative risk score, you know, the, these patients are generally sicker. They have by definition, sounds like some level of disability, their inability to get out of the house. Um, I imagine then your linkage to things like palliative care uh, and uh, even hospice or other services is is key. I mean, it's part of the program. Yeah, definitely. So we refer, we use community resources for a variety of of reasons. So visiting nurse would be a common referral that we have, uh, multiple different nursing agencies here in the New York area. Um, hospice is, is also um, a frequent referral. Our faculty um, have a variety of backgrounds. So half of our faculty um, have their primary appointment in geriatrics, half of our faculty have a primary appointment in internal medicine, mm-hmm. and um, uh, many of our faculty also have palliative medicine training. Excellent. We consider our program, when we r- talk about our program, where we call ourselves home-based primary and palliative care. Oh, okay. um, so all of our faculty have the training to do primary palliative care. Um, and we and we you know do do that as appropriate you know for mm-hmm. the patients as they move through a trajectory. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's an integrated part of it's the an integrated program. part of the program. Yeah, amazing. Um, we um, there is a separate program here at Mount Sinai sure. that's looking at home based palliative care only. Um, sure. And but uh, that's that's a different it's program a different. right now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, this is probably stating the obvious, but I'm, I'm going to assume, and folks that are listening from all over the place, not all of them are medical. And, um, the, you know, I, I've done home visits in my career, so I have a good sense of it. But if you could describe the the kinds of insights that are different in a home-based model rather than an office-based model. There are so many, but yeah. maybe some highlights that would be helpful. I think the one that um, trainees often are 
first struck at, you know, when they come in is just how people store their medicines, mm-hmm. how, you know, when you ask about medicines, they're like, oh, here's all my medicines. And then you see a whole bunch of things on the cabinet around you. And you ask, what are all those? Oh, I take them sometimes. And so yeah. really getting the right medication list of what someone is and what they're actually taking and how they're taking it and understanding the challenges of how that may or may not be difficult. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the first things. And then, then the literal, you're walking into their home. Like, what's that home like? How is it, how are they able to, you know, get to the bathroom? How who cooks for them, or do they cook themselves? You know, seeing all that um, can really um, immediately, you know, send the picture of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I have this one story that I tell of a patient that I had got, been in the hospital every month for 11 months in a row and then she was referred to visiting doctors and I come in to see her and I'm just looking around and you know she has a oxygen that she wears um, during the day and then at night she has a a BiPAP machine Mm -hmm. Um, and she had a kind of high amount of oxygen she had to be on during the day and so I'm asking all these questions I'm like so then you know you cook this over there you move the oxygen to the BiPAP machine at night and they looked at me like they had never realized they had to like oh, no. do that hookup and like just the fact that I was like going through the motions of what they actually do, oh, seeing it in real time. That's the kind of thing that, you know, and that one fix of having her wear oxygen at night. That's life changing. Was life changing. She was out yeah. of the hospital for four or five months in a row after that. Yeah. And um, you would never get that in an office unless you just got lucky. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And you may not have gotten it on a home visit either because obviously not every time are you going through sure. that much detail, but, um, um, it's probably more likely. I yeah, think. exactly. Um, yeah, you know, t- to see, um, to be able to s- to to really see, you know, how they have to do things in in the home because of maybe the disability mm-hmm. um, is eye opening, and you're able to actually cr- come up with a creative solution sometimes mm-hmm. that may not be the textbook solution, but right. yet the right, probably the right one for the them. Right one for them. Um, I imagine some people are wondering, do you ever feel, in, uh, have you ever felt in danger? Or imagine you're going into situations that are complicated fa- yeah. from a family and caregiver standpoint, um, sometimes maybe even violent, or certainly neglect could be an issue, but people get pretty defensive. I'm, I'm just curious. If- yeah, so we take safety very seriously. So every new um, person who goes into the home, you know, social worker, mm-hmm. NP, physician gets our, has training on mm-hmm. that. Um, we also send residents or trainees in pairs to homes. Okay. Um, so we do have um, trainees go without an attending to the home. So safety is a really important part of our um, kind of pre-work for any of this. So the, the first thing is that we ask people to put pets in another room. Um, even, you know, the nicest dog who's super sweet, when you lay a person on their couch to do an abdominal exam, they've yeah. never seen that. And right. for a dog would think that could be, you know, um, You're hurting, you're hurting them. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have to, we do we do that. Um, okay. We don't see a new patient alone. Okay. Um, we always take someone um, with us, um, and either a trainee. So it's not a security guard; it's just a second person. Yeah, right. Um, we also all have a GPS on our phones um, that we know where everybody is yeah. at any one time. That's never been used in a safety incident, but that's been more used when we know that, like. Um, like there was a gas explosion and a mm-hmm. building, you know, mm-hmm. crumbled, and we just wanted to see who was near there, you yep. know, and um, so we we you know have that up on an admin screen. Um, 
We don't go to a home where we know that there's drug activity going on in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we also um, ask um, all family members that there can't be any open firearms in the home. Um, uh, so all those things we... Yeah. There's a whole list, but that's kind yeah, of that's a, high, uh, highlights of, yeah, of our sense. safety um, protocols. Um, in these last few minutes, I, I'd love to hear both about what some of your biggest challenges have been uh, over the last few years in, in this program, but and then you know, hopefully more optimistically also, what do you see for the next few years? But uh, maybe we can start with the challenges. Yeah. First. I mean, I think the biggest challenges is there's just such a great need um, for the program. As I said, we have a wait list and we would um, love to be able to expand, but frankly, we only bring in um, about a third of our operating budget based on regular insurance billing. Mm-hmm. So that, um, you know, the hospital has been very generous in supporting the other two-thirds of our budget, and they do that um, because of the training we do. They mm-hmm. do that because of um, there's many patients in at-risk um, health arrangements that mm-hmm. the health system has that we've been able to consistently show that we've been able to reduce what um, right. the spend on the patient right. um, like like that. So we get that that support, um, but it doesn't always, you know, cost avoidance versus yeah. direct billing is 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 still um, challenges um, for us. Um, so I think that 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 is um, one of the biggest challenges is just trying to uh, maintain that. Um, the 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 second is um, is burnout of of the employees. You know, this is. Um, high intensity uh, one faculty member might have you know only 150 patients and you get to know them quite well so we do a lot of work to support um, everyone on the team um, including um, uh, uh, condolence cards and reviewing what happened you know before someone died um, you know acknowledging death those kind of things to just kind of support the entire team yeah. um, um, and being able to like maintain that physician wellness yeah. slash NP slash social work wellness it, they've invested so much emotionally yeah, yeah. exactly um, to, to turn to the um, you know opportunities I mean I think that um, as the health system has even more groups of patients that they are taking, um, uh, you know, financial risk on, mm-hmm. I think we are we are in the right place to take yeah. many more patients who meet that that those criteria. And frankly, we could probably do a few extra things, a few other things for the right population. I mean, what our expertise is is in the home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if there's a way to um, work with some patients short term or um, who may not be permanently homebound but make a um, impact on their health um, and then have them return to regular primary care or work with a specific group within the health system, um, you know, oncology, liver patients, a mm-hmm. variety of things, those, those could be an opportunity we would be, you know, interested in, right. um, you know, seeing how it goes. I think um, even beyond just the health system, particularly taking financial risk, I think nationally there's a lot of interest in understanding um, uh, populations like this. You know, we're not the only house call program in the country. Sure, right. Um, and, um, in fact, Medicare has a program called Independence at Home 
which we were not eligible to participate in when it started, I think now maybe six, seven years ago, but it has consistently showed improved health outcomes and improved savings to Mm -hmm. Medicare for patients that are exactly like visiting doctors. Right. Um, And um, it, you know, needs to be opened up nationally um, and expanded beyond the 10,000 patients who can benefit right Right. now in it. Um, And that, when that happens, which which I'm sure it will happen or something very close to it in another model will happen that will um, allow... Um, you know, direct reimbursement yeah. instead of only through the health system you know, yeah. for sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one one thing you know, we started with medical residents as the people who started the the program, and I think that training part is the reason why many of our faculty and staff chose to be at Mount Sinai visiting doctors. And so, just you know, continuing to allow us to have medical students and residents and fellows and from a broader group within the health system is has been exciting and mm-hmm. something we really want to continue to um, expose them you know to to the opportunity of what house calls have absolutely I, you know you think about w- all the different drivers of physician burnout and there are a million of them whether whether it's technology or the volume the chase for volume all, all those sort of things but uh, you know one of the things I love about doing house calls even just in my own career but certainly doing it in is I mean, there's certainly a lot of risk uh, on the emotional side when you when you're that involved with those patients, but there's certainly a lot of reward and gratification from having those relationships too. And uh, you know, I, it it seems like a, a win-win if you can make it happen. It's yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I certainly. Um, spend a lot of my time on the administrative side, and sometimes I see, you know, Wednesdays are the days I go out on, on house calls. I'm like, oh, I have so much to do. I can't even try to fit that in. And then when I, but I go, and then when I'm out there, and I and I come back, I'm like, this is what I was meant to right, do. Exactly. I could never give up on That's doing right. the clinical work. This is really important to um, balance out my Absolutely. my work balance. Yeah, Linda, I really appreciate your time and your work for sure, and I look forward to working with you down the road. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. If you have other ideas for a future podcast, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thanks for listening.